Um, we're looking at Revelation chapter 18 and 19. Um, I was visiting um, an uncle who's in a nursing home. He's very old. And he used to be in the ministry. Um, and I said to him, we're doing a series on Revelation. And he said, well, you're okay for chapters one to three. And then it all gets a bit difficult, doesn't it? So well done, everyone. We're persisting and we're getting through. Um, I'd like to invite our readers this morning to come and read. Uh, Tom and Georgie. In this prophetic vision of John, we're now coming to the climax, the end of this present age. And we see in these two chapters the destinies that are decided. We see on the one hand the destiny of the destruction of evil and on the other hand the delight of the coming age. Yeah, come. Tom and Emily, uh, Tom and um, Georgie are not married, but they, they are married, but they're not married to each other. It's just for <laughs> If you're new, just to make that very clear. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Revelation chapter 18. Uh, so Revelation 18, reading from the ESV translation. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a, dwend, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the winepress of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, and to give her a like measure of torment and moaning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am, a, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, 
fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendor are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste, and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for, for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. And now the good bit. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by he by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Thank you, Tom and Georgie. So we have two contrasts here. We have destinies decided, we have destruction, and we have uh, delight. Um, I'm not going to cover all that's in these two chapters, there's there's far too much. But I want to look first at the fall of Babylon. Babylon would have been understood by John and the Christians of that day to be the city of Rome. But for us, Babylon is symbolic of all that is evil and sinful. Babylon is described as a place where demons, unclean spirits, and all that and all that is evil dwells. Babylon is identified here with the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. And the angel calls out in this vision with a mighty voice and declares that Babylon is the dwelling place of evil and immorality and is a whore, strong language. Rome at this time uh, was seen in this way. Its emperors and its leaders were evil. They were power-driven and pleasure-crazed. The people of Rome had been seduced into a false economic security, having gods of luxury. John would have known about the reign of Nero in Rome. Nero apparently squandered, by today's money, 18 million in just a few years. Nero declared the only use of money was to squander it. He had so much, and that was his use of it. He spent 35,000 on flowers for one banquet. 
It was outrageous, the wealth in this city. It was common for the rich in Rome to dissolve pearls and other gems in wine and then drink it. The ancient belief was that these gems had medicinal qualities. They were supposed to cure drunkenness, hemorrhage, infertility, delirium, and fevers. I think drinking a concoction of gems and wine would give you all those things, not heal you from them. They were obsessed with the gods of sexual pleasure. They lived in grandiose extravagance. They were greedy, they were selfish, they were pleasure mad. They were arrogant and idolatrous. This extravagance in the city of Rome was unbelievable. The fall of Babylon is announced in such a way in this vision as if it has already happened. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. So certain is the final outcome of judgment on Babylon. It is seen in John's vision here as a certainty. But then John hears another voice. Come out of her, my people. William Barclay puts it very bluntly. He says, God is always calling his people to cut their connection with sin and to stand with him and for him. We're in the world, aren't we? But not of the world. We're not to have fellowship with the sins of Babylon, not to be ensnared by the world, not to be enticed Live in the world, yes, but separated unto Jesus. 1 Timothy 5 says, Do not participate in another man's sin. Keep yourself pure. Because it feels good doesn't mean that it's right. There's a right time to leave a party. There's a right time to leave a group of friends. 1 Peter 2 says, Keep your conduct honourable so that others may see your good deeds. So it's not a matter of us retiring from the world, it's a question of living differently, to swim against the tide. Many of you will know that I've got a kayak and a couple of weeks ago I was out um, and it was beautiful mill pond in the sea and it was great rowing and paddling rather and, uh, but I've been in, in, in the sea when um, we've been against the tide and you paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle and paddle and you get nowhere sometimes it's difficult to swim against the tide but we are called to live very differently to have an undivided heart of love for Jesus I've been reading a bit in kings at the moment in my daily readings and um, even in, when there was a good king in Israel and Judah it says sometimes they left things on the high places they didn't destroy the high places they were good but they hadn't dealt with everything in their lives sometimes it's difficult to swim against the tide sometimes it's so difficult to live differently but that's what Jesus wants us to have isn't it an undivided heart of love for him every Babylon will fall whether it was the literal Babylon in the Old Testament whether it was Rome in these days or some other kingdom some other power some other empire some other dominion including all antichrists they will fall only the kingdom of Jesus will remain amen great 
So John is seeing the climax in this vision. The final fall of Babylon comes in a single hour. If you noticed in verse 10, 17, and 19, it talks about an hour. This is when Satan, all his minions, all his cronies, along with all his works, not only have their sell-by date, but their strict use-by date. Their activity will be stopped. Their days are numbered. There will be a final separation, a final punishment, and a ceasing of Satan's influence on the earth. I go to a dentist regularly and they seem to give me an appointment for a follow-up in nine months' time. You think, oh, that's way, way, you know, and then suddenly you look through your, your diary and it's a month away and then suddenly it's a week and then, oh dear, the hour has come. And it's like that, you know, Satan's hour will come and there will be a final separation and it will be more painful than the dentist. Towards the end of this chapter, we see the complete destruction. There's that picture, isn't there, of a strong and mighty angel with a huge millstone. I don't know whether you've seen a millstone, but they're absolutely enormous. And uh, there's this picture here of the, the angel picking up this huge millstone and throwing it into the depths of the sea, not to be retrieved again. Now, with our technology, we could probably find it in the deepest sea these days. But you get the picture. It's unretrievable. Its fall is going to be irreversible. It's going to be a complete destruction. And then there's silence in the city. The destruction was complete. It exists no more. Nothing is left of Babylon. There's no music, no craftsmen, no traders, no light, no speech, no singing, no joy. The silence of desolation, the silence of everything is gone. It's an eerie silence, a void. There's nothing left. That's a contrast, isn't it, to the silence we saw earlier in the book of Revelation, the silence in heaven where there was 30 minutes of wonder and anticipation of Jesus. At Christ's second coming, all of Satan's, uh, all of Satan's persecution of the church, all of his power to deceive, every influence that Satan had will cease. It all goes with him to hell, never again to appear anywhere outside of hell, gone forever, total defeat. You know, we don't know what that looks or feels like, do we? Because we have never lived in a place where there's been no evil, no suffering, no tears, no injustice. Just as much as heaven is where God is in all his fullness, hell will be the only place where Satan, his minion, his followers will dwell. So it's a destiny of destruction for Satan. But for the church, for the people of God, it's a destiny of delight. And I want for the rest of this uh, message to speak about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Heaven celebrates with loud voices, shouts of victory. The whore of Babylon has gone and now the bride has come, that pure bride that Jesus is preparing. John sees this great multitude worshipping and singing, hallelujah, Salvation, glory, and power belong to God who reigns over all. 
hallelujah. I love that word. We sing it a lot, don't we? How many, I'm going to do a straw poll now. How many times do you think that word hallelujah occurs in the Bible? Okay, the first option is up to 10. The second option is between 11 and 50. The third option is between 51 and 100. And the last option is 101 to 150 times. Just think about it. How many times do you think the word hallelujah occurs in the Bible? Put your hand up if you think it's under 10, up to 10 times. Okay, no takers for that. 11 to 50, pop your hand up if you think that's... No, oh, a few takers there. 51 to 100. A few, yes, a few more, great. So all the rest of you must be 101 to 150, yes? Wow, that's interesting. Hallelujah occurs four times in Scripture. Just four times. And do you know where they are? They're all in this passage. They are all in this chapter. Hallelujah literally means praise God. Um, I've cheated slightly because in the Old Testament, uh, in the Hebrew, there is the praise God form, but it's not actually the same as this hallelujah form. So I did cheat a little bit, but it's only four times. But you see, hallelujah is reserved for this chapter because it's a picture of heaven. So every time you say hallelujah, say hallelujah. Every time you say hallelujah, say hallelujah. You're using the language of heaven. Because this is what John heard in heaven. John then hears a huge crescendo of worship. Now from angels and men, like the sound of many waters. Mighty thunders from innumerable choirs. Worshippers, a concert of heavenly music. I imagine this was uh, nothing like John had heard before. Notes the extent of this vision he had. You know, it affected all of his senses. It was some things that he saw, it was some things that he heard, and it was some things he felt. He felt the thunder of, of, of heaven. It must have been quite frightening in some way, John, to have this, this vision. And this choir announces, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. So why this ecstasy in worship? What was heaven seeing? What was heaven rejoicing at? The worship announces the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this is a bit of a strange mixture of images, isn't it? Marriage and a lamb. As far as I know, sheep don't get marriage. So it's a bit of a mix of metaphors here. But of course, a lambs, the lamb is significant throughout scripture. Right from Abel, Isaac, and Abraham, the Exodus, then the sacrifice of lambs in the, in the te- as part of tabernacle, and then later as temple worship. For us, more significantly, John the Baptist announced when he saw Jesus coming for his baptism, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was not like any other sacrifice for sin in the Old Testament. He was a once for all time sacrifice for the sins of the world. It's also interesting that Jesus used wedding imagery and banquets in his parables. They're very familiar images of the kingdom. 
However, we do need to understand a little about the marriage customs of the Hebrew um, and Jewish weddings. First is the engagement or the betrothal, which is different from engagement in our culture. It's actually a binding agreement. When a couple gets married, it's an abiding an agreement. At the engagement, the terms of the marriage are accepted in the presence of witnesses and God's blessing is pronounced on the, ma on the marriage. It's not a romantic evening at Beachy Head with a man down on one knee or an expensive restaurant job. No, this is actually quite formal. It's a contract. And at this point of engagement, the couple are actually legally married. They've done the legal bit. This is why Joseph sought quietly to, do, to divorce Mary, you know, in the story of Jesus, around Jesus' birth. Because they were legally married when she became pregnant uh, with Jesus. So Joseph was actually trying to do the honourable thing in his culture. So after this engagement, this betrothal, next comes the interval of time between the engagement, the legal bit, and the wedding feast. And during this interval, the bridegroom pays a dowry to the father of the bride. This could be in money, it could be in livestock, so 20 camels for your daughter, sir, that type of thing. And sometimes it could be a services rendered. You remember in the story of Jacob, he served seven and then another seven years for Rachel. And at the end of the period of engagement and on the day of the wedding feast, a procession takes place. And this marks the end of the waiting period and the beginning of the marriage celebrations. The bride, in the meantime, is preparing herself with getting all the bride stuff ready, clothes and jewellery and makeup and stuff. The, the bridegroom at the wedding day feast puts on his best clothes. He gets all his chums around him, his friends with him, and they process the streets. They carry torches and go to the house of the bride. And the bridegroom receives the bride and takes her and they go with the whole procession to his home to celebrate the marriage. So it's quite a different um, culture to what we have. And then they finally have the wedding feast, which is the culmination, the high point of celebrations. And these can last for seven days or even longer in Jewish culture. So the church is betrothed, is engaged, if you like, to Christ. We are engaged to Christ. Christ has paid the dowry for us. By his own blood, he has bought us. The covenant of love has been agreed. It's been paid for. It's been sealed. It is unbreakable. Our names are graven on the palms of Jesus' hands. Our names are written in indelible ink in the book of life. Your name cannot be removed or torn out. No one can pluck us from his hands. There's so much scripture there, isn't there, that gives us enormous assurance of our salvation, of our, our place with Christ. It's a done deal because we're engaged. We're not going to be jilted at the altar. The engagement that we have with Christ, the betrothal he has with his church is unbreakable. You might want to say hallelujah. Great. <laughs> the interval between paying the dowry 
The interval of separation and preparation is actually this time that we live in. It is the period between Christ's ascension and his coming again. And during this period, the bride makes herself ready. And this is marriage prep. It said in the reading there, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what does marriage prep look like? If we're in the marriage prep stage, what does marriage prep look like? It's those righteous acts. These are the acts of love, of selfless devotion, sometimes unseen. Things that are done when we're tired and weary. Those deeds that are carried out that cost us something. The kind word and the smile, the helping hand, the lifting up of the broken, the comforting of the downtrodden. The sandwich given to the beggar. Money pushed through a letterbox. Prayers for the weak. Those acts of obedience, those things that God has asked us to do. Those are the righteous acts of the saints. Righteous acts also carry with them the sense of faithfulness. You remember back to the seven churches that we looked at. A common theme throughout that was, be faithful, my children, be faithful. Love and faithfulness are key in marriage. And so too in marriage preparation. Then we hear that she's clothing herself. Clothing herself is the working out of our salvation, the sanctification of our character, the working of God in our hearts, replacing those hard hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, not resisting his work in our lives, not being stubborn. You know, stubborn is not to be strong. It's not a great characteristic in our lives. When God's trying to deal with something in our lives, let's not be stubborn. Let's hastily uh, deal with those things. Our salvation is not just a ticket to the marriage supper. It's a journey of allowing his grace deeper in our hearts. It's a journey of deeper intimacy with Jesus. So intimacy and communication is key to marriage and our preparation. The bride is given these fine limbing garments, but the bride has to make herself ready. We too put on those robes of righteousness that Christ has given us, and this represents our trust in him. So these fine garments can be seen both as God's righteousness and ours. So our marriage prep in this season that we're in, waiting for Jesus to return, is all about learning to love him. We had that theme several times throughout the book of Revelation, you know, remembering that first embrace, remembering that first time we knew him. Marriage prepper is being faithful, it's listening to him, it's intimacy, and it's trusting him. At the end of this period, the bridegroom Jesus is accompanied by angels, processes, and comes to receive his bride, the church, to take her to the feast be with him. It's a wonderful picture isn't it for us of uh, who we are in Christ and what Christ is going to do. And I just want to close by reading um, from 1 Thessalonians 4 because this is just a um, reinforce this coming of Christ for us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel 
and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air, and so we will be with him forever. The bride on that day will be amazingly radiant. You're all going to be amazingly radiant. But unlike our wedding celebrations, Jesus will be center stage. Jesus will be the focused. The feast begins and will last forever, not a mere seven days. Amen. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you've given to us this destiny of delight. Thank you for these beautiful pictures that we have of the, the wedding feast. And Lord, we want to uh, prepare our hearts. We want to have an undivided heart of love for you. You call us to live differently. And that's our aim, Lord, that we would swim against the tide, even when it's difficult, that we would be faithful in living differently for you as you call us. And thank you that you empower us in that. Help us, Father, to be faithful, to grow in our relationship with you so that we will be that stunning bride that you are looking for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back and we're going to sing our last song which reflects that beautiful day, that final day, that hour when Christ will come. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit Christchurchhailsham.org.